Welcome to the podcast of Hemisphere, the official journal of the European Hematology Association. Hemisphere's podcast presents insightful, expert discussions about recent hematology publications. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. My name is Stephen Hibbs. I'm a hematologist and clinical research fellow based at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm one of the scientific editors for Hemisphere. So in this episode, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Joe Taylor, to talk about some themes that were raised in a paper I wrote last year called This is Going to Hurt, Reapproaching the Patient Experience of Bone Marrow Biopsies. We're going to talk a little bit about um, how we're trained, a bit about how we talk to patients about bone marrow biopsies, about how we talk to each other as clinicians, and some of the outstanding questions about bone marrow biopsies and the patient experience of them. So Joe, if I could turn to you now and ask you to introduce yourself and to let me know your initial memories of first watching and then performing bone marrow biopsies. Yeah, sure. Hi. So I'm I'm Joe Taylor. I'm um, in my last year, well, just finishing training in a couple of months in the on the East London rotation, Hematology Ridge. Um, and yeah, I've worked with Stephen over over the years. As far as first memories of learning how to do bone marrow procedure. Um, my memory is of an SA, as an SHO, and my initial memory is that I thought the needles were enormous and that I thought it was quite a brutal procedure um, to witness first time. And then to do it, um, I, I, I was, I think we probably both taught on a kind of do, see a couple, try it out, and with the kind of, my memory is being told that we do it, we're in a safe area and there's not much else you can hit. And I, I think that's still something that is a narrative around, um, around bone marrow. And um, that you, and at the time it was also very much, you kept going until you got the sample. And, you, in, if, and I think if you had started and it was sore, people went back with more analgesia, but, but actually they kept going until they got sample. And often that's fair because they really need the sample, the samples for an important purpose. But um, I think things are probably better from that point of view now. And I see more people calling for help and changing operator if they're struggling. But yeah, I think that's my first memory. So I think one of the things that surprised me most when I was reading about biopsy experience um, in preparation for this article last year was about the disparity between some of the earlier literature about pain and persistent pain and some more recent smaller studies. So um, specifically, I, I know some of the big UK studies that sort of informed some of our complication rates that were led by Professor Bain maybe 20 years ago or, or 15 years ago, something like that. They reported really tiny levels of persistent pain, so sort of less than one in a thousand. But it was all clinician reported. And so I guess what you've got to have there is both the patient who feels enabled or has been asked about their pain, and then a clinician who takes it seriously enough to actually own that as a complication and say, yes, that, that is persistent pain. And so studies in which they looked at this and actually followed people up and asked them actively have shown that most people still have pain several days after a good number you know for, for, for weeks and, and even by I can't remember if it was months or a year but but really quite a long way away it was about five percent of people who still have some persistent pain which I think is quite a surprise uh, and so I, I've now I now do warn people about that when I'm consenting them for, for biopsies 
The other thing I really try and warn people about is the moment of aspiration, because that just seems to be something that's quite unpredictable that some people won't notice it at all. But I say to people, you know, when I'm I'm consenting a patient, something to the effect of some people feel a really unpleasant pulling sensation um, at that moment. I will warn you before I'm going to do that. And it will only last a couple of seconds if, if that is the case. But again, I, I really try and um, highlight that because I, I think you just I think a lot of it is is moments of surprising pain that feel out of control are so much worse than moments where you are expecting pain. That's I, I really like your counting now from 10 thing because I've not done that before. But I think that's a great way to acknowledge there's pain, but to, to kind of signpost to it and to limit it. So, yeah, is there anything else that you kind of tell, tell patients about about pain? I mean, I suppose in the same way, actually, it also signposts to the relative who's often there to hold hands and they kind of help them through that bit, which does. Um, yeah, I, th- I think from pain perspective, actually, there's is it what you were saying um, about the Bain, the Barbara Bain study, which actually I'm not I don't want to talk down. I think it's a really important study. It, it looked at 20,000 bone marrows and the conclusions that it made was that complications but were rare. But there were significant rare um, rare complications. The problem is what we've drawn from that is incorrect. And what you commonly hear is is people saying it's a very safe procedure. And we really don't know that actually, because what because that was a study that was done before the electronic health record. You're definitely right. All that stuff about what whether we are declaring and recording properly whether people are having complications. This this is a this is a study where we we've, we've written to each hospital and said how many bone marrow procedures have you done and what complications have you reported which is wildly different from a pro- from a collection over time and i personally have seen many i've seen complications um i've i know of deaths i know of a series of more so i i'm very confident that the complication rate is significantly higher than what we're seeing in that study and i think it's not to a criticism of the study i think it's down to the way that data was collected and, under- and we need to understand what that data means and what it does not mean and it does not mean it's safe or it does not mean it's exceptionally safe it does it it is a safe procedure but it's not an exceptionally safe procedure and i think interestingly about what you said what you're saying about prolonged pain totally uncaptured in that study and there's other there's other elements to that that i think is are important so i read a study saying that 15 percent of bone marrow trephines asymptomatically hit the si joint so that's an enormous percentage. And actually, I spoke to our histopathologist. They say they frequently see, frequently see cartilage in the trephine. We are hitting that joint. And if you get SI joint pain, and sansacroiliitis is, is a re- recognized finding after um, bone marrow biopsy. And if you get that pain, firstly, SI joint pain will not feel like pain at the spot of the biopsy. It'll radiate into the buttocks. So they may not associate with that pain with the biopsy. They may have myeloma and a lot of other pain otherwise, but also we're doing this in young people. And we don't know if you puncture and take a core out of an SI joint, what that's going to do in 20 years time to that joint, for example. So there's a lot of uncaptured stuff there. I think going back to other complications, because I should have said when I was about consent, I also do consent for death. I say exceptionally rare reported in one in 30,000 marrows, I think. I say severe bleeding, exceptionally rare, but can happen. And then I go through the series and I I cover common and you should know about, but I do mention death because it does happen. It is a recognized thing and it should be be recorded in the consent. Reflecting on everything you've kind of read and learned about 
um, bone biopsies and safety and experience and and if you could kind of design redesign what a bone marrow biopsy service unit would look like what are some of the sort of key elements that, that, that you want to be involved i mean i suppose there's minimum there's desirable and there's what i believe it should be and i think desirable and really minimum is the kind of stuff you were describing earlier the, the stuff about making it a more pleasant experience making sure that we are taking the time to just pay respect to the fact that it is a significant procedure that some people are psychologically scarred by and some people are have a lot of anxiety build up to making sure that we're aware of that and dealing with that anxiety and not kind of minimizing it saying it's going to be fine don't worry about it let's just get on with it i think the truth is Looking back, when I was a, a house officer, it was completely acceptable to do a, a plural tap blind on the ward with minimal training, and I did. And now we recognise that there's a, a pneumothorax rate to that, and people won't even do it, even it's only the respiratory registrar with an ultrasound. And I think that we, we should be finding out in more detail what the actual complication rates are. And I really think that in an ideal world, this is a procedure that would be done in an anaesthetic room with an, with an anaesthetist with proper monitoring afterwards and the option of sedation if people wanted it. And I actually think ultrasound guidance could do a lot for safety. I'm sure it would reduce the hit rate of the SI joint, which I think is an important thing. And I think who knows what damage that does. I think it would give us more confidence. I actually think it would mean we'd anaesthetize better because you're always aware that you've got 10 mils of lidocaine and you want to use it in the right spot. I think if you could lie someone prone, do it with a bone marrow, but um, with a, an ultrasound and know exactly where you're going, you would then be able to spend more time getting sure and making sure that anaesthetic is right and delivering it properly. I think those are the, those are the kind of main criteria um, that I'd say that in my sort of dream thing. And I don't really think... <laughs> It, that's such an unreasonable thing. I think it's lack of engagement with the with the um, anaesthetic service. And I wonder if it's because, as hematologists, we're slightly isolated from the rest of general medicine because all these procedures that were commonplace when we were early in training are no longer done that way. And the reason they're no longer done that way is safety and cleanliness as well, actually. And we're, we've got, I mean, express patients, just to add that in. And so I wonder if we just need to evolve as hematologists and move in that same direction and yes that will need considerable inconvenience on our for us and redesign of our service but maybe that's just what it should happen i've been struck at thinking about other departments like in endoscopy as well where a lot of it is that it's there's a there's a sense of focus on doing one thing really well and i think biopsies are often not like that you're kind of sitting in the same waiting room as people are coming for transfusions or chemo or blood tests and you know you get fitted in when you do you, you know you might have a rough time slot but there's a sense of kind of there's not really a sense of calm and of the elective nature of of what what it is really which is something that's planned I, I, i've thought about how ideally i'd want to have a conversation in advance of the day of just so someone heard my voice and and I could talk to them about some of these things and, and you know probably send over a video that, that's particularly kind of go, goes through it a bit in advance and that there was the sense that someone wasn't just kind of picturing this anonymous practitioner who was going to come and do this do this but that actually was going to they'd spoken to them and there was hopefully some rapport that had been formed already I think there's actually a few things that have shown to be effective I think tramadol 
for aspirate pain, there's there's good enough evidence, I, I think anyway, that apart from perhaps for those who've had lots of aspirates and don't get aspirate related pain, I think that would be a very reasonable thing to do. I think station, as you say, having that as an option and it not just being this kind of thing, you've got to go the extra mile and everyone's a bit grumpy about it because it's hard to arrange, but actually that that just happens right, for anyone who, who who wants it. Perhaps with, you know, I guess that there would be situations in which you'd have to have a really careful conversation about the particular risks for particular people. But I think a lot of the time it, that isn't what it is. It's more just like this is a lot of hassle and there's not good systems in place to to, to do this. Yeah, I, I think I think just just to treat it as something more akin to an endoscopy or or something where you you've come in and that's what people are focused on and that's what a service you know does will just lead to people thinking more in that way rather than as you know this is the thing we do on the side and we just get it done you know that that I think as a whole way of thinking would change this I was going to ask about training as well because that that's I think an important important part of the puzzle and something we both talked about feeling that hadn't gone in an ideal way for us um even though I, I know I've had plenty of supportive colleagues who've helped me along the way but um what's your thoughts on how bone marrow biopsy training um could look I think I completely agree I think it's it, it should could, could and should be a lot better I mean I think that there should be a much longer process of teaching there should be much more recognition and acknowledgement that the the, ga- the goal of the bone marrow biopsy is not to get a good quick sample, it's to get a good quick sample with minimal discomfort to the patient. And and that and once you take that into account, then actually the, the process is, it should, should have longer and better training. I think that actually it's a procedure that goes a lot better when two people are doing it. And that we don't do that because of the, because it's inconvenient to us and we don't have time but actually if if we had a longer kind of supervised training process then we would have people that were much better operators much kinder operators and and delivering safer and and nicer bone marrows i think there's a lot of training around the um procedure that's not done at all i was told when i started this is the spot feel for this bone go there it'll be fine there's nothing near there that can go wrong is that's factually factually not not correct. And actually, I learned the anatomy retrospectively quite late. And actually, when I talk about the anatomy to people, there's often a bit of surprise and looks of anxiety there because because at the end of the day, we're focusing on a spot that's about a centimeter and a half across. If you if you go um, to lateral to that, you can slip and give a gluteal tear as you slip down the bone. And everyone's experienced that feeling, unfortunately, and that will give a month of pain to the patient but also in there you've got significant large vessels and you've got significant large nerves and then if you go laterally and medially rather just a little just half a centimeter medially but deep is the SI joint and a little bit more medially you will hit the um the sacrum and the sacrum you won't know you're hitting the sacrum because it has bone marrow in it so you'll be coring you'll get your result it'll just be deeper than you expect but the major nerves travel through the sacrum and you can eat. And I know of cases, I know of, of, of bleeds and a, and a death post bone marrow that tends to be in people first presentation with an MPN. I know of people who have had um, sacroiliac nerve damage um, that can take a long time to recover. I know I, there's a whole list of complications, firstly, that we're not consenting for well, but also I think lots of operators are not really aware of and 
and the difficult thing with big people is you can it's fine you're right you, it's true to say if you're in the right spot you'll be fine and if you angle correctly then your core deep and you can core a long way and two centimeters is the optimal sample which is great but actually the depth if you're not at the right angle to the si joint is less than two centimeters so that's one of the reasons why we're hitting it if you're going if you're not angling correctly not in the right spot and in a big person you're feeling what you think is that spot in the bone but you might be way off and if you're way off off target then those complications are firstly really important for us to understand and know about so that we can recognize what's happening if somebody's having a vasovagal um the new mpn having a vasovagal 30 minutes post procedure could be a significant bleed into the um pelvis because we could have gone all the way through or just knowing what kind of complications could happen and what how we should deal with it. And actually, I think that would help people calm, help people feel better about what they that they knew what they were doing and also mean that we got better samples and better results. And mm. I think ultrasound being cheaply and easily available, relatively cheaply, answers a lot of that because that suddenly we can say, I know that I'm angling right. I know that I'm in the right spot and I know that my two centimeter core isn't going into isn't going too deep and into somewhere dangerous because two centimeters is what we aim for but it's it's a long way and a need and in a big person a, a needle that long can be this far in which is a is a long way and actually makes me feel anxious and certainly made me feel a lot more anxious when i didn't understand the anatomy properly yes yeah i think um a lot of it really comes down to just taking it more seriously really like in all these areas and I, I think the sort of literature that I could find when I was looking up training as I, as I wrote the article last year was only really in the sort of nursing and allied health professional literature. And that was fairly brief, but it, one of the striking things was I think this particular program was suggesting, I think it was 100 supervised procedures or at least 50. It was it was a lot, you know, which I, you know, I, I don't know how many I did supervise, but it was nowhere near, nowhere near that. And so that, that's one part of it. I also wonder about, you know, just learning from the surgical specialties and others about the, the role of um, simulation, of, of models, of, of virtual reality, even like actually you, a lot of it is, people say a lot of it's just experience, but but that learning curve, we could probably get a hell of a lot higher up that learning curve before we're with a, another human um, through, through some of those, through some of those models actually um so i think experienced and unsupervised experience is not the same thing right yeah. right exactly yeah, agree. exactly so i think there's both a place for more direct supervision i mean i remember coming as a third year registrar who should by then in my mind be really good at biopsies and just having to go to the best person at doing these procedures in our particular unit who was a physician's associate so, so in the uk system that's someone who would support physicians and could be very skilled in a lot of different tasks but but um isn't medically trained and this particular person was brilliant you know a brilliant kind of operator and i just said to her look I, I should know how to do this better than i do but actually can i just come and do a couple of days with you uh, where i just watch you watch me and that was so good you, you know by then i'd done a lot but actually getting some feedback getting some you know even i guess even after we if we were picturing a kind of training system in which you have a lot of supervision at the start having supervision later on as well where, where people are really sort of carefully you know just just some of it wouldn't be some of it would just be sharing good practice of, of saying you know here, here's something you don't have to do but actually this is how i've got around this particular problem in the past 
yeah i, I guess i guess it, it all starts with the admission that this is a bigger deal than the sort of general discourse around it has has implied that we need to learn to do it not just to do it but to do it well yes well. exactly so final question then research and this might connect with that point of just taking this more seriously than than we have collectively in the past what do you think are the most important unanswered questions in this area of of, of biopsies that, that could be addressed by research well i mean i think as we've kind of covered like the the barbara bain study was really important but i think we're now 25 20 years on rather and it's kind of pretty disappointing that we can't really sit here and say we know precisely how safe this procedure is so that's number one like we need to and that's not just how many people die because this shouldn't be about how many people die we know that's very low it's what's the morbidity of it what are the complications what exactly is the complication rate how should we be doing it better i think there's there's so many things that we could be looking at from a research perspective on this and they're really topical. I mean, even the news not that long ago was somebody going sternally with a bone marrow biopsy, trephine needle, how that could ever, I mean, that was a, an SI event, but, you know, that, that's entirely, but, but it's still, it is, an, it is an issue, it's a live issue. And I think that, that there are, I think it's disappointing that we don't know this already, but I think there's a lot of research opportunity to know how to do it properly and how to do it better. And and as yeah, as I've said probably a couple of times now, not just how to do it, but how to do it as well as it can be. Because I mean, AML is a terrible disease. AML is a disease that is just devastating. And people are so scarred by being in hospital. If they're more scarred by repeated bone marrows, just from a kindness point of view, that's something that we we could and should be doing a lot better than we are. And and if we can just reduce that, then that's a major win. And actually, for, for kind of reasons um, we might be poor at it, is I wonder is, as soon as it's going to happen to me soon, as soon as you're a consultant, you don't need to do them anymore or very rarely need to do them. You know, you look at the results and that's important, but the kind of reality fades and the, the, the memory of your good bone marrows probably sticks around more than the memory of your bad ones because you're thinking, oh, I'm better now. But actually, I don't know what proportion of bone marrows as a whole among practitioners are good bone marrows and how many are bad bone marrows, but that balance could be shifted a long way. And, and actually by, by, I'm going to try and remember as a consultant to this, that I still care about this. And this is something that we should continue to push on because it's easy to fade into the less important things as you, you, your focus shifts to other things. But yeah, I think the only thing I'd add to that is that probably that question of what, a good bone marrow looks like needs to be about good bone marrows for different body shapes as well. I, I, yeah. I, think, I think that particular question of if you have got a lot of, um, if, well, if your fat distribution overlies your posterior ilex spine, what is the best? What is the best approach, and, and and what measures can be taken to make that safer? And that probably overlaps with a lot of what you said, but I think that's a, yeah, that feels like there's there's a sort of injustice or inequity or something something in our it's not acceptable to say it's just going to hurt more for you that is not acceptable so yeah. it needs to be addressed yeah. and we should be know about enough about it as to how to address it well joe thank you i've really appreciated um your comments on this and, and the discussion i think i think we've covered a lot of ground and um 
thank you to all of our listeners um, for listening in today to this Hemisphere podcast. We'll be back soon um, with another episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hemisphere podcast. All of Hemisphere's content is open access and can be found at www.hemispherejournal.com. We hope you will join us for future podcast episodes.